Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me Liam Bailey. Liam is Global Head of Research at Knight Frank, based in London. Liam runs a team providing insight on the world's key property markets. And I first found your firm through the research that you all provided, really through some of the family office connections I have with Camden Global and, and some of the survey data that they were producing. You're based in London, but you cover the entire world. And I thought it'd be fascinating to have you on and just kind of get some commentary. So I appreciate you joining. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So what I want to do is kind of, we're recording this in, in May of, of 2022. Could you maybe go pre-COVID and say kind of what the state of the housing market was then and kind of what that journey looked like through COVID and, and maybe what the state of play is here, and then we'll get into some other, the uh, more esoteric topics. Yeah, and, and if I, I can talk about sort of global markets and... Please. Yeah, okay. So it was, well, I suppose actually we, we were, uh, lots of markets move at different speeds, but there were some sort of commonalities, you know, the beginning of the pandemic uh, timeline, you know, sort of early 2020, markets like the UK and, and, and the US were, you know, they, they, they were seeing low levels of growth. Um, they were relatively healthy markets. Affordability wasn't a uh, wasn't a significant pressure um, in, in, in most most of the markets that we cover globally. There were some anomalies. So, you know, New York and London stand out as um, uh, as markets that had lagged for a few years. You know, there's an element of oversupply in New York back from sort of 2016, 17. And London had some significant tax changes uh, about the same period. So, those markets were just slowly kind of recovering, I suppose, from those kind of um, those headwinds. And then, as you say, the the pandemic hit, and I think the initial thought was an expectation was that you know markets were going to be shut down, and uh, there would be a really difficult period in terms of values and, um, and and transactions and so forth. Obviously, there was a hiatus as markets were were effectively closed for a few months, um, sort of mid twenty twenty. But it was funny, you know, um, just going. Looking at the UK market, you know the the market reopened in um, May uh, of 2020, and then you know the it was, we we already began to see quite a surge in activity, um, and the expectation was that it was kind of a, it was just pent up demand from that close down, and then the government here in the UK they kind of released stimulus into the housing market by um, 
uh, giving a stamp duty holidays or a tax holiday for people purchasing properties to kind of get the market moving. And similar kind of activities happened in, in, in many markets around the world. And in retrospect, you know, some of those things really, really weren't needed. And actually, it was quite clear quite quickly that markets were bouncing back slightly more more quickly than was expected. And probably there was, there was an impetus behind the, the rebound, which was more than just a catch up from, from the first lockdown. And really, you know, I think as, as, as all your, your, your um, audience will be familiar, you know, housing markets globally since then have, have really kind of been incredibly strong and, you know, have seen some incredibly healthy <laughs> performance. Um, and ultimately, it's, you know, it's been that combination of, you know, debt was cheap because bank, you know, central banks were looking to prop up economies. So they pushed down short term and long term interest rates through QE and interest rate movements. And there was this buildup of um, savings during the pandemic, which became a really a big driver of um, people coming into the market. But the fundamental issue was the kind of reassessment of lifestyle. So the pandemic has certainly made people rethink, you know, their jobs, their employment, their what they're prioritising, and property was at their homes was a, a really big central part of that of that um, that that issue, and it led to you know, almost record levels of transactions in many markets, you know, Europe, North America, even parts of Asia. And those drivers are still with us, uh, although I'm sure we're going to come on to the next phase of the market that we're facing, where things are going to be, will become more complicated, I think, over the next few months. So you mentioned some of these factors that I wanted to get into with you a little bit. Obviously, we've seen this huge run-up in the housing market, really globally for all the reasons you mentioned. But now we're into a phase where inflation is an issue. Interest rates are going up. Mortgage rates are going up significantly 200, 300 basis points. And there's this huge supply chain problem. So do you see the housing market reversing at all? Yes. I, I think it's. I think it would be really unusual if you know if, if the levels of growth in prices and transaction and strong transaction volumes if that continues that would be quite unexpected i think the market was likely to slow uh, this year i think in in, in most of the kind of key you know developed world housing markets and i think the the latest crisis in terms of uh, ukraine crisis the impact that's had on energy prices and inflation and therefore interest rates is accelerating that process so I think if you think about the negatives that the kind of headwinds that are facing markets right now, the most obvious one is is, is cost of debt. Debt has is becoming more expensive for mortgage um, borrowers in, in most of the world, and that is having an impact on affordability. And that we need to be, you know, let's just take a step back. Mortgages, mortgage costs are rising from really, really low levels to low levels. <laughs> They're still very cheap in historical terms. The, the problem that many markets face is that we, we've seen strong price growth over a decade now, or, you know, relatively healthy de- growth over a decade, supercharged over the last two years, where it's now in some markets unsustainable at prices at that level. And you can see the pressures in places like, for example, New Zealand, seen you know, incredibly strong growth over the last two years in a sort of 30 40% in some in some markets in New Zealand so uh, and that it isn't a, a complete outlier there are many other markets that have seen similar levels of growth that growth combined with an uptick now in in the cost of debt causes a you know causes a, a, a challenge and a problem and you're already seeing i think in sort of forward looking indicators things like the numbers of people looking online for property looking you know people actually look on search engines looking for properties to buy uh, is declining um you know it's sort of back to pre-pandemic levels even in some locations below pre-pandemic levels so the, i think there's some obvious reasons why we should expect price growth to slow and stop in many many markets this year and actually in a, in a number of markets for it to go into reversal over the next probably sort of 12 24 months but just to you know put that in context i think in, in most markets you're talking about a single digit fall in prices probably at most um, over the next year or so the question or the debate at the moment i think amongst economists is you know actually are we at risk of a a serious reversal because you know if housing markets fall by five percent i mean you know to be fair you're back to where you were in pricing terms last september 
it's not a you know, it's not a significant issue uh, in 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 terms of um, you know what, you know underlying confidence in the market. A more significant fall of say ten percent plus or double digit falls, um, and you you move into kind of a house price crash scenario. That becomes more concerning, um, to not just to, to homeowners, but also to the kind of wider economy. And um, I think you know, never say never with any with any market movement. You know, there there are, there are always unexpected sort of you know turns of events, etc. But there are a number of reasons why I think we should probably be, be relatively positive. Um, and if you are a homeowner and you're, you're you're concerned about the value of your home, I think there are reasons why you should be positive about the longer term outcome because. There are a number of things still in the market that are, that are supporting prices at the, at the levels they've reached. So, for example, supply is not an issue right now. It's not 2008. There isn't oversupply in the market. One of the biggest problems facing most housing markets the last two years has been lack of supply. So I was in L.A. recently with um, with our partners over there doing a presentation, and it was the feedback from the market in, the, in, in, in California is, you know, stock volumes to buy in the residential market are down 40%, you know, below their kind of pre-pandemic norm. Why, and why Why is that, right? I mean, the story was pent-up demand the last few years. I mean, people, demographers know that this millennial generation is, you know, a large cohort entering into a phase of life where they're going to want to be homeowners, start families. I'm one of them. Why is it that the market didn't create enough product for them, well, I, I think the, the pandemic didn't help in the sense that you know the, the new build market, where so new construction, you know, obviously is a is a great um, release valve for the market. So actually, if you know if, if if demand rises, builders can kind of you know help to kind of um, deliver stock to to meet that demand. And of course, during the pandemic, you know, every, everything has slowed down. You know, and 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 developers have faced you know rising costs, their um, supply chain issues and therefore the rate of delivery of new, of new housing has, has been you know massively disrupted uh, at a time when people have been looking to to to, to, to consume housing at a greater a, a greater level i mean it, some of these things are really quite significant shifts in in, in the market and i think I, I i was looking at the latest data in in, in the uk market um, through our own network at night frank and the the numbers of new buyers registering to purchase property and again it's another support for the market right now is it, it's it's really strong so you know I, I was looking at say prime London so the kind of the the million pound plus market in in in, in London we've probably got almost a hundred percent more buyers registering to purchase property in that sector now compared to the level you'd expect to see uh, in 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 May of, uh, in a, in a, in a kind of uh, in this part of the cycle. So demand is really strong. Supply is is very weak at the moment, hence the kind of the the, the underpinning on prices. And the the other issue I think is, is is around savings that were built up during the pandemic are still there. People still in many European markets and and, and certainly true in the US, household savings have risen by about twenty percent through the pandemic. And yes, some of that's been invested into housing uh, over the last sort of eighteen months, but not all of it and there's still a big um sort of buffer that households have got in terms of right you know and i'm not taking away the severity of the house the, the cost of living crisis but households do have uh, have built up in many cases money which can be um used in the housing market so uh, you know, there are a number of kind of i suppose dr- drivers which are supporting prices and i think which won't you know won't it doesn't mean that the housing market will escape affordability pressures and therefore price falls but I, I think it means that a crash scenario or you know or a significant downturn scenario is a much is much less likely outcome than it than it could have been I want to go a little bit deeper on the affordability issue that you mentioned you know something that we hear a lot about the housing crisis but what is the solution set there and are there any markets that are doing it the right way uh, well, it's, I mean it's the the number one question in you know in in just about every developed in every developed economy you know the, the, the cost of housing and and access to housing i think so many different approaches have been tried and you know the, and the kind of classic you know routes recently that have been tried in different parts of the world like berlin and i know parts of the us and that they're even being sort of looked at in in scotland in the uk is around rent controls and trying to artificially sort of hold down the cost of housing and 
unfortunately those those types of approaches you know they they they, they sound like they make sense and they kind of sound that they're that they're a good idea but actually they tend to be a disastrous idea because they they lead to a, a lower investment in 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 housing so actually you you will protect a group of tenants um from you know high uh, rent costs at the expense of actually making the supply issue worse and actually affordability overall much worse there doesn't i think there are obviously sort of targeted measures things like um, shared ownership housing port for targeted groups that 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 can that can work i think i, I think the, the the obvious thing that does work is is delivery of, of of housing and actually i think if you look at the us versus european markets uh, it may not feel feel like it in the us but the, the us housing market has been much more affordable since the crash uh, since the global financial crisis much more affordable than european markets uh, and primarily because you have uh, in the us is a much uh, easier supply response um you know fundamentally you've got land and it's easier to build in in the us uh, and and you know canada to an extent so therefore when demand rises supply can rise quite quickly um whereas in european markets because of just you know the density of populations it's a it's a slower response, and therefore you will see on, on most metric, you know, housing affordability issues are more pronounced in, in in European markets. That said, if you then look at places like New York or San Francisco and LA, etc., the big cities, the crisis is that is there. The, you know, the, the the cost of housing crisis is 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 there very clear, um, but primarily because of just that sheer demand and weight of people looking to be in cities near job opportunities and. Um, take advantage of, uh, of of being close to to employers that then sort of prompts a, a question i suppose is it, does the pandemic undo that that issue if if workers are you know untethered from the office increasingly and can be based anywhere could actually this be an opportunity to help spread demand around a country like the us or around you know countries in in, in other other markets and actually lessen um, affordability pressures and, and there may be something in that think at the moment it's just, we don't have the, the, i don't think the data is robust enough to kind of say actually those kinds of uh trade-offs are happening yet so let's go there i was just in new york um this week i got in last night and this odd disconnect between all the locals telling me that house pricing are um above what they were pre-covid no supply meanwhile you walk around midtown manhattan Half the buildings are empty. A lot of the retail shops and storefronts are are vacant. Could you just give some high level commentary on on the future of work, how that's going to impact the housing market? And an unfair question, but could you look in the crystal ball and, and kind of tell us what you think the next call it three to five years look like for you know that that dynamic? Yeah, I'm very happy. I mean, I, you know, I can speculate, and I think the the, the, the and I'll certainly share my, share my thoughts. I think the reality is this: this is something which is exercising, you know, every sort of property professional at the moment because it's it, it is a significant unknown. I think property as a sector as a whole was was massively dis- disrupted by the pandemic. Um, you know, retail and leisure, you know, faced the lockdowns and the and and, and the chain challenges that that kind of provided. So disruption in the retail sector is, is something which has been accelerated and, and has continued. The office market. I think you know it's. We still don't quite know where it's going to land. I mean, every every company seems to have their own policy, and every company seems to be nervous of actually admit of actually clarifying their policy because there's a lack of confidence, I suppose. But the if you go tough on the return to work policy, actually, what's the impact in terms of um, employee retention? Um, so companies are kind of finding their ways at the moment. But I think it's quite clear in the office market there is a, a kind of a flight quality there is a, there was a kind of recognition i think that some activities didn't make sense it didn't make sense for people to commute for an hour and a half each way to the office to process email and actually that came that became quite stark during the pandemic actually why are some of these activities done in offices but things like training collaborating networking you know um research and development and so forth that those that those activities actually are much better in person and, and collectively and actually, office space it may may not be well designed to actually maximise those activities. So I think developers and and office um, developers uh, are recognising actually that if you have the right product, you can you can charge a premium. I mean, it's funny looking at the London market at the moment; rents are 
rising in you know in, in many parts of, of of central London because of the quality of the stock that's been offered and actually it's in real demand from um, from uh, corporate occupiers. But I think there is an acceptance that the five days a week in the office is unlikely to come back anytime soon, and that you know, that that does mean a continued push for people looking at their um, their home setup and, and and their home lives. And I think even though we're kind of two years from the beginning of the pandemic, and lots of people have moved house and lots of people have kind of have gone for space and gardens and so forth. Um, it hasn't settled yet. You know, the, the demand figures suggest that people are still working out how they want to how they want to live, how they want to work, and it's this trade off. There is, a, I think, there's an acceptance that actually you can't sever yourself. Comp- well, in many cases, you can't sever yourself completely from the office, and therefore, actually, a very very long commute might not be the thing that actually is right post pandemic. Um, accessibility to the city is still going to be important. Potentially, if you're commuting on fewer days, you might just stretch that commute a little bit and and, and try and get more space. But I I think you know if you're, you're broader question about the kind of the future of the city and you know what, what's the outlook for CBDs and so so on globally. I'm positive that they you know, they will survive. There, there there is a I, I don't think the human <laughs> desire for you know gathering and socialising and, 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 and coming together. I don't think that's changed. I think the way we approach some of those activities may, may shift slightly, but the general tone is people people need to come together. And, 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 and I think that cities as incubators of growth and innovation and ideas, I don't see that disappearing. Yeah, I would, I would echo that sentiment. In the city this week, I was there for a family office conference and the energy was wild, but palpable. Yeah. And you know, that density, the number of meetings and connections I was able to make within a, you know, 10 block radius of, of Midtown was just unbelievable, right? So you yeah. can't replicate that elsewhere. And there was the appetite seems to be very high right now to, to bring those type of things back. And cities are perfectly, you know, big gateway markets are, are perfectly set up for that. I want to talk you, about. Oh, did, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say. You, you remember the second? Well, I, there were so many lockdowns. I, I forget now. But the I remember the, the second winter lockdown. So, so last year, just gone. You know, and New York was locked down. London was locked down. All the big cities globally were locked down, and everyone sort of said, "Oh, you know, it's the death of the city." But you know, guess what? You know, you 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 close down. You know, in the winter, you close down restaurants and bars and clubs and. <laughs> All the things that make cities bearable, guess what? They don't look very attractive. But actually, when you reopen them, actually the the desire and the and the appetite for these these things just come straight back. You know, and and you know, to your point, you know, London, um, you know, last night in the West End was you know absolutely packed. I mean, people, you know, they're, they're, there's a real commitment <laughs> to having fun. You know, after the pandemic, I think, and not not to be crass, but I still think cities are going to be where you find your mate. Right. In, in many ways. Right. And there'll be this phase of life where you're developing professionally, you're developing socially. And that's a big part of people's stories. And, and that's the, 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 the role that cities have played for a very long time. I think they'll continue to do so. Really, but, but also it's, it's also the role of the workplace, because in, in, in some ways, you know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, for employers is, the desire for home working is, is, you know, tends to be from survey, you know, responses tends to be from those people who are who who are established, settled down, families, etc., more senior in their careers, and actually, you know, it's quite convenient um, um, to to work at home, you know, on on a more regular basis. Of course, the people who really don't need that, and actually, it's a real negative for actually those people starting their careers, so young people coming into work who actually need that. Um, learning and you know connectivity and kind of the ability to build a network because they haven't got one yet they're just starting um, and those that dichotomy I think between what younger workers need um, and what older workers you know or some older workers may, may want is is quite a challenge I think um, and actually will become I think a bigger issue in terms of attracting talent to a business because uh, you know might might it's quite clear. I mean, people will take different views on this, but I find it quite clear that actually the energy in a workplace with people sharing ideas and collaborating, as long as the workplace facilitates that that type of activity, you know, it's it, it's a really positive thing. And if you lose that and you atomize the, you know, your teams and so on, I, I just don't see how that can attract 
young talent, particularly um, in, in, into a, to, to an employer. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I do want to touch on maybe the the population that you referenced, the the C suites who are established, doing well. Would love to hear your your commentary and thoughts on second home market, the luxury home market, the this digital no bad concept that we hear quite a bit and, and cross border investment. I know that's a lot of things that I just threw at you, but um, just broad strokes. Would, would love to hear what your your thoughts are there. Yeah, I mean the luxury market, you know, mirrored I suppose the, the wider mainstream market through the pandemic. So you know, really similar kind of trends in terms of you know desire for space, strong demand for um, you know particular kind of properties with privacy and 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 even sort of you know urban properties with gardens, you know, obviously you know hugely in demand. I think there was the the second home market, um, particularly in Europe struggled um to, to to get to gain traction 2020 primarily just because of the um continual lockdowns and sort of flight restrictions um, the ability to actually move around um europe or even the us was was difficult uh, for a period i think by 2021 that that eased enough and actually the markets you know certainly in the us but uh, but also in, in places like the alps south of france spain etc began to um see some really strong demand and i think there was probably sort of a peak period in in twenty twenty one when people were thinking actually you know maybe actually I, I I can spend half a week now in the Alps and half a week in London or you know or wherever and this this concept of co primary residences I don't know whether um, we work with a we have a colleague in um, in the US called Jonathan Miller who runs um, Miller Samuel, um, their evaluation um, agency, appraisal agency. I don't know whether he claimed well, he I think he might claim to, to to have coined the phrase co-primary, but the idea being that you don't have second homes, you have two primary homes because you you sort of split your time between your urban property and your and your um, your sort of rural retreat or coastal retreat, uh, and both of them are kind of used equally as as, as as homes depending on on your requirements. But we, we've certainly seen people try and move to that model. And I think, you know, the, afflu- the affluent home owner and investor in, in, in Europe and beyond has, has, has the opportunity to try that. And it's, it's been a big driver of demand. I think that is still a driving force for, the, for our markets. And actually, we had a conference um, at Night Frank last week, our global residential conference. And the feedback from our teams was, you know, really positive in terms of the demand story, particularly in those kind of mountain slash sunbelt hotspots you know the real confidence in the markets at at the moment despite you know brewing economic tensions and so forth there's a real i think property has become or residential properties become more front and center of the kind of luxury consumers lifestyle and also their kind of investment strategy as well want to learn more about investing in alternatives Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. I'm seeing the, the, the same from you know, the ultra-high net worth population that, that we deal with as well. I think there many of them thought, oh, I'll do this forever and I'll live at my second home. And, but then they realize they, they want that connectivity. So I, I think there will be kind of a shaking out and a balancing there. What about cross border investment? What are you seeing there? And how is this China lockdown? You know, I, I saw in the news yesterday or today that China, in order to avoid what's happened with some of the Russian oligarchs is telling all of their political and business executives to divest overseas holdings uh, to bring capital back home. Are you seeing that impact the Southeast Asian market at all? No, not really. I, I think I think there's been a challenge for, for mainland Chinese investors for you know for, for a few years. It's been quite clear that the government uh, are not yeah are not encouraging of of, of um, property investment, you know, global property investment by uh, Chinese citizens. Despite that. That desire. I mean, there has obviously been a continued, you know, supply of, um, you know, flow of buyers from from the mainland into into global markets. Maybe it's too early to see the impact of that particular rule change or, or or encouragement from the government. I think the bigger issue, to be fair, has been 
you know, really stringent lockdown measures, not just in China, but actually, you know, across the wider um, Southeast Asia um, market. You know, Singaporean, Hong Kong and Chinese investors have been, you know, the mainstay uh, of many markets, you know, from Canada to the UK to um, in the parts of the US as well, and certainly Australia. And they have become less important over the last few years actually to be fair some of that uh, decline predates the pandemic and i think there was a shift in behavior i think there was um we certainly saw a change in singaporean and hong kong investors moving towards a lower price product they were looking, they, they began to be much more interest i think from probably from about 2000 sort of 17 18 they began to be more more, more focused on yield uh, and income return and slightly more aggressive in terms of their their investment criteria. Um, so whereas Hong Kong buyers have been very big in the kind of one to one and a half million pound market in London, it was more the kind of probably say 600 to 800,000 pound market um, you know, in more recent years. Um, so there's been a slight shift there, but I, I, I think I think Chinese demand is still strong. It's just difficult at the moment for, for buyers to 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 if then if buyers haven't bought already in London or in you know, the US or wherever, and they're not familiar with the market, they're really not keen to buy off plan unseen. I think if if, if you have you know Chinese buyers who are, are familiar with Western markets and they bought already, um, then they're quite happy to you know to, to kind of buy off plan and to and because they they feel confident with the market they're buying into. So therefore, you know, travel restrictions have been the, the big issue there. I, I did some, I ran the numbers actually in, in London um, a couple of weeks ago. And I'll calculate, I mean, it's an interesting one, actually looking at arrivals data into into um, different airports. So Heathrow in April was down 36% compared to April 2019, so pre-pandemic. Uh, Dubai was down 31%. Hong Kong is down, unsurprisingly, ninety eight percent, or was down ninety eight percent in April. You know, there's no normality yet. I mean, we're recovering, but we're not back to normal in terms of international kind of connectivity. Um, and what flows from that is our calculation that probably the, the central London market is missing about twenty percent of its of its um, international buyers at the moment. So, I think actually, as we move through this year and we will see a slowdown in our markets actually i think you will see more international buyers eventually coming back into our markets um and the other driver that is going to be the dollar strength um so less of a story for the us but certainly a big story for the uk and for europe is you know this this significant uptick in the in the value of the dollar which obviously supports um the buying power of middle eastern investors and asian investors which i think will begin to play out probably in the second half of the year Want to shift gears uh, here to sustainability and ESG? What are, if you're looking at it from just a, a global macro investment standpoint, even some folks who maybe not aren't believers in it, it is real. It's here. It's going to be the lens through which many of these large uh, international corporations operate. What are some of the big trends you're seeing there? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting in the sort of the B two B space. So you know, office occupiers, office developers, there is a real uh, commercial imperative to get on the right side of the story. So there is a you know, there's a driver from investors and from regulators and so forth to kind of ensure that uh, businesses are occupying green space, aiming for net zero and all that sort of stuff, and that's driving the market um, almost ahead of regulation. Um, so actually, there's, a, there's an impetus from the marketplace. When you go into the in, into the, the into the private consumer space, into say housing, that doesn't exist in the same way. So there, you know, the, there is little evidence still. I mean, we've done many studies on this. There's little evidence at the moment that home buyers are particularly swayed by the green credentials of a property. Then that may, that may well change right now with the um, with the surge in the cost of heating homes. But at the, until now, there has been no sort of discernible kind of um, driver. And funny enough, we, I, I did a, uh, an article for the Wealth Report this year, just looking at this issue of ESG and luxury. Um, and I interviewed a um, very high-profile, uh, you know, super prime developer in the UK, who said that actually, you know, he in you know twenty twenty-five years of of, of practice, he 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 never had a client come to him 
asking for or inquiring about the green credentials of a, of, of a, of a luxury property until about 18 months ago. And he suddenly saw, you know, two or three clients. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's a kind of boutique bespoke developer. Uh, but two or three clients, you know, suddenly expressed an interest in and desire in, in 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 these things, and you know, you know, a couple of anecdotes don't make for data, but there did seem to be a shift, and it was it was repeated by a couple of other developers. There's certainly a a desire, I think, from wealthy um, home buyers. Um, well, there's a growing desire, I suppose, to, to actually investigate what's possible. It's an interesting one because that one of the examples that the um, that he had was a, a client who looked at a um, a property, a, a beautiful old property in, in 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 London, a big big house, and he wanted a super green sort of property. Uh, so it was listed, so you couldn't you couldn't change the exterior, but what you could do is you you could take the entire interior out and replace it with this kind of beautiful kind of concrete box. It's very sort of clean amazing looking sculptural kind of interior and super green you know really high high quality uh, finishings and, and and very energy efficient but actually if you were to sort of consider the the, the embodied carbon in that process you'd have been better off actually just you know doing secondary glazing and some really good insulation um but i think there's also there's, there's sometimes a desire for the to, to look the product needs to look green <laughs> as well as actually be green to, to actually sort of really grab someone's attention but i, I think you know, your your broader point is is right that there is a is what probably one of the fastest growth trends I've ever seen in the property market is this shift in in the kind of corporate space uh, for a demand for a you know ESG friendly attributes um, in their property portfolios and I you know it's it's only going one way at the moment I think there are some challenges though around it so. The, the, the increased focus on, on, on embodied carbon probably means that actually demolition of ungreen buildings and replaced with green buildings becomes more difficult. And actually, I think much more retrofitting is probably going to be the way forward in many cases, uh, which is, you know, I think is a, is a good thing in terms of looking at the kind of the whole life carbon cost of a building. Um, and I think the other one is around offsetting. And I think that there is a, a growing question mark around the sustainability of offsetting in in in, in certain circumstances, so for example, the planting of trees and uh, those types of schemes, they can be a, a net benefit. They can be a net negative uh, if actually you, you know you if you focus purely on carbon and you don't focus on things like say biodiversity and um, actually natural capital, then you can you, know, you can end up damaging the environment uh, in in a, in a in an attempt to kind of tick tick the right boxes for your portfolio. And greenwashes. Greenwashing is something that we all need to be, you know, vigilant against. But this is the the way the world is turning. Yeah, I think that that point on, on greenwashing is really is really important. I, I think it's I, I I think it's in, it's incumbent. I think on you know on corporates and um, anyone in this space to to really to to put the effort in to understand, think through the different activities that that they're undertaking because the. The speed of change, the speed of development, and the and the weight of money coming into the sector means that things like that kind of some of those offsetting problems can be lost. And actually, you, you don't want to find yourself in you know five years time that actually as a as a, as a business as a you know as a, as, a, as an employer actually you did the wrong thing, even for the right motives. That actually it, it, it wasn't an intelligent use of um, of um, your funds and and and, and so forth. I read the other day, I think it was in the Financial Times, it may have been The Economist, about how there are now over 500,000 homes in Australia, I believe near Brisbane, that are uninsurable because of climate change, then catastrophic flooding and, and droughts, and no underwriter is willing to put a policy on them. <laughs> Thoughts there is this is obviously going to be something that's going to continue. You look at California, look at other places in the states. Wildfire risk is now a huge problem. The insurance market, I saw something had to pay out some ungodly sum of money last year to cover all of these events. How is that impacting the housing market? How is that going to play out? What are your what are your thoughts there? Well, I I think it's. It's clear that I think you know if an area uh, or a, you know a locality you know uh, faces you know significant environmental risk, it obviously impacts on value and and, and it you know impact, impacts significantly on demand and, and and these aren't brand new issues. I mean you know 
for you know for a long time you know coastal erosion has is a, is a fact of life and you know threatens coastal communities and 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 you find what was insurable and viable you know 20 years ago 30 years ago suddenly isn't because actually the coast has you know erosion speeded up or or, or, or an error was made in, in in terms of coastal protection up you know up the coast and actually it's had a negative impact where you are and you know and so on i think the growth of the the issue and the growth of the numbers of properties um in in this position um obviously you know broadens that issue and therefore you know people you know buyer beware and you know you need to do due diligence as best you can uh, before you purchase but i think it also it opens up a, a bigger question i think around gov- government involvement and actually our taxpayer involvement i suppose pressure will i think the cost of climate change mitigation so actually how do you you know how, how do those people in in the houses you just mentioned you know how, how do they get through that problem they've actually been uninsured for example does the government step in to provide a kind of backstop insurance um um policy we've you know we've seen that in in in, in the different situations and scenarios around the world already uh, is there a call for more of that? And actually, some of that could be quite significant costs. And ultimately, it isn't governments that pay; it's taxpayers. Do you then start thinking more carefully, or if the taxpayer potentially is on the hook for backstopping some of these in- insurance issues, that do governments become more aggressive in terms of actually where developers are allowed to develop? Because ultimately, you know, your ability to build, sell, and walk away from the problem and leave somebody else on the hook for the um, for the insurance problem. You know, it doesn't seem that sustainable. Um, so, you know, planning regulation may 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 become uh, may need to become tougher uh, over time. But it it also it's a it's a broader issue I think around who's you know who's able to pay for climate change adaptation. So, uh, you know, in in the UK, there's a live debate at the moment around you know what is the cost of actually ins- of, of insulating and improving homes. Um, to get them to the right standard, um, you know, we, th- th- there's an EPC kind of um, certificate process. You know, if you've got a grade A, you've, you've got a very, you know, environmentally friendly home. If you've got a grade, you know, lower grades are, are sort of more negative. But there's a cost in terms of improving existing homes to get them to the right standard. And in some cases, that cost is going to be significant. So let's say ten thousand pounds for a property that's worth one hundred and sixty thousand pounds. It becomes a big issue, uh, and that homeowner may not be able to afford that. So, does the government then step in to actually sort of um, to aid that process or to fund that process? That will be taking place alongside, you know, decarbonisation of the electricity grid, um, you know, across the world. There are a significant number of costs, you know, there are there are tangled up in this process. And I think it's going to be at the moment we're focused on pandemic and post-pandemic spending. The next decade, I think, is going to be a much bigger, more highly charged political debate about actually who bears the cost of this this process. So, one final question: Are we going to enter into a recession? <laughs> well, I, I think the risk of a recession has has, has risen, uh, obviously, in the past two months, you know, because of the energy crisis. I think there there are some reasons why. Uh, it, it, it's quite easy to, to, to sort of get a technical recession. You know, you you could easily see a technical recession in sort of Q3, Q4 this year in parts of Europe and potentially in the US as well. But there are some reasons to sort of to suspect that might not come to pass. The economy is definitely weakening, but if you look at the jobs markets, so the difference this time around compared to say 2008 and, and previous re- um, potential recessions is that the jobs market is incredibly strong. You know, that there is very low unemployment in most markets. Consumer confidence is weak at the moment, but it would be a lot weaker if people felt nervous about their ability to retain employment. And I think that the jobs market um, story will, will, will be a support, I think, for, for economies uh, in terms of cons- the, the consumer's um, position. And the other one is, is actually those, those sort of pandemic savings that were, that were built up through the, um, through, the, through the pandemic. They will provide a degree of um, cushioning for Households um, and actually give some sort of offset to the to the sort of the, to the cost of living squeeze. Not to downplay that, but I, I think there's some there are some factors there. I think the other one is, of course, that the central banks are they they are struggling with 
the, you know, the, the consensus is that they've moved too slowly, too late. Uh, and now they're playing catch up, and it, and and this is a, this is the position they didn't want to be in. But actually, if economies are slowing, the pressure on central banks to to not raise rates as rapidly as they maybe would like to do is going to be writ large. Um, if you know, and and actually, it, again, it depends how quickly inflation moves down. Um, and it it may not be a rapid process, but if we do see by say the autumn of this year that actually the kind of base effect comes in, and you will begin to see energy price inflation falling, does that just ease the pressure on the central banks and also boost consumer confidence? And actually, you you, you then kind of avoid that situation, so you get one quarter negative growth, and you avoid the kind of recession scenario. So. Uh, it's probably not a very clear answer, but <laughs> I think it, it, it could be avoided. Yeah, there is there's no there is no clear answer, unfortunately. And I and I lied. I, I'd have one more I did want to get to you uh to, to go back to a previous part of the conversation. Um top kind of second home, luxury home markets that maybe are not on people's radar that you see emerging over the near term, things just to keep an eye out for that that you've heard about recently um well uh, one, one market that is worth mentioning um, and it's not it's not a hidden market at all so it doesn't answer your question but i think it's just worth a mention is is dubai so dubai is you know obviously a, you know uh, has been a very high profile market for a number for for a number of years i think it it dubai moved through the pandemic from being a regional hub to becoming a global hub, and actually, just touching on a point you mentioned earlier about the kind of the, the digital nomad boom through the through the pandemic, you know, the the the, um, the Dubai government, you know, they, they saw an opportunity there in terms of actually, you know, if you can become untethered from the office, why not come and base yourself in Dubai for a period of time? And as a result, the short let market, the long let market, and the sales market has just you know been incredibly strong. Our latest data on the Dubai market, and this isn't me making an error, our, our latest data is a 56% growth in prices in the last year. Now, that may surprise people. The other thing that probably surprised me even more is the fact that Dubai in the luxury market suffers from a lack of stock. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to compute because actually this is a market that's, that's seeing rapid construction you know, activity. Um, but there was a slowdown during the pandemic. But also in terms of the, the, the kind of the, the real core kind of prime locations in Dubai, there is little stock coming forward at the moment so that is a market which has got i think further to run and also if you look at pricing in dubai versus you know comparable kind of global uh, gateway cities it's very affordable uh, compared to other other locations and the growth potential of the of the city looking ahead is is really strong i think there's a really compelling case for dubai it's always been a volatile market so you know that that may not disappear uh, in, in terms of the volatility, but I think the story there is really is a really compelling one. I think actually, <laughs> again, not to answer your question about sort of hidden markets, but I, I think actually city markets like London and like New York that struggled during the pandemic, um, you know, Florida and, you know, Miami and LA did well um, and, 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 and they benefited through the pandemic. New York didn't. And I, I think that despite, some of the challenges that you know New York faces around taxation and so on, I, I still think there is room for growth in in those markets. And prices didn't you know haven't risen. You know you've got thirty percent growth in prices in in America in the last two years, uh, maybe slightly less. But New York is probably or prime New York's up about three or four percent. You know it didn't see the growth that the the country saw. And in in, in London it's exactly the same story. Central London prices are up about three percent in two years versus the UK, 20%. Um, and I think as reopening comes in, and I think there's actually, um, you know, as we move through the, the current headwinds and we and hopefully move through them in, in, into maybe next year, 2024, I think actually the, the, those markets will see some some real strength actually uh, in, in terms of buyer activity. Okay, Dubai. I need to get over there for the F1 race anyway, so let's go check it out. Liam, I want to thank you for the time. It's been awesome. I really encourage all the listeners who are interested in, in any of these topics we've covered to check out the website, your newsletters. You all create incredible content, really insightful. If people are interested in connecting with you or learning more about 
uh, the content you create, the education that you're putting out there? What's the best way for them to get engaged? Oh, these things, um, if you go to our uh, website, so it's nightfrank.com slash research, um, and you, you, you'll see all our research there. Um, there's a there's a, a, a daily note that I that I do a daily email um, and you'll you'll find a sign up um, page there. But I can um, I can share that with you. Um, you can share with your listeners. Yeah, we'll we'll include in the show notes. Liam, I want to thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.